If you want to get your Bibles out, it's Romans chapter 8. We're continuing with our, um, our series called Set Apart. It's been a fantastic three weeks so far. So good last week to see. Um, thank you, Chris, as well, for leading and pastoring the church after James' sermon. I think he did a fantastic job. Uh, That's the kind of church that we want, chance to, to pray for each other, to allow God's word to infiltrate our hearts, to change us, but also to pray, brothers and sisters. So Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was not subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For God foreknew, he also, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's a, a real privilege to be able to introduce Haley. You might recognize her if you've been with us for a year or so. Haley came and preached in our uh, discipleship series this time last year, which is crazy. That's been a year. Uh, for those who don't know, Haley was part of um, our youth group, was one of the young people in my youth group uh, a long time ago. <laughs> and I had a little bit more hair on my ball patch at that point. Uh, and uh, it's always a honor and a privilege to introduce people that um, have had a little bit of a say into their life. So um, can I pray for you? Yeah, is that all right? Father God, I just thank you for uh, my sister in Christ. I thank you for her heart for you, her love for your words. We just pray that you'll anoint her now, fill her with your spirit, that everything that you want to say to us, um, Lord, that we have uh, receptive hearts and receptive ears to what that is. Use your servant and uh, may it be a time of transformation in our lives, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Um, hello again. Um, as Jim said, I'm Hayley. Um, I'm married to David, who's down here at the front. Um, we currently live in Cardiff, um, but I grew up in this church. Um, I came to faith here, so it's a real joy to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I wanted to start our time together this morning just by sharing a few stories with you to try and paint a picture as we think about this whole idea of being set apart and being sanctified. Um, recently, I had a coffee with a friend called Anna. And for years, Anna has struggled with the effect of anxiety in her life. And since graduating university, it's had a severe effect on her ability to work, to build relationships, to engage with God. She feels like she's failing as a Christian, and she feels unworthy and unlovable. George um, is a Christian who really wants to grow in his faith, but feels like he's constantly being tempted away from Jesus and towards things that he knows will end badly. Every Sunday, he sits in church, 
He hears the message from the front and he longs to put it into practice. But then Monday comes and the laws of success and comfort feel all too real. And then there's Tom. Tom's been a Christian for many years and he's often wondering if following Jesus is really worth it. Because sin looks so good and being holy is so hard. These men and women love Jesus. The spirit is at work in their lives, but the reality of sin and suffering remains. How should they respond? And how should we? Because we too will be struggling with similar realities, very aware of the effects of suffering, daily battling against sin. And while we might want to grow to be more like Jesus, sometimes it feels like we're going backwards. And sometimes we might even feel like maybe sin isn't really that big a deal. That maybe we feel like we're missing out on something as Christians when we say no to drunkenness, to sexual immorality, to success. So what hope do we have when seeing Jesus feels like such a far-off reality and the pleasures of today are right here tempting us in? How can we keep persevering when the road to sanctification feels so hard? Well, the good news is Romans 8 has a much better message for us this morning than just hold on or even just try harder. And it's summed up right, uh, wonderfully right at the beginning of our passage. So if you do have a Bible, I'd love you to keep that open. We'll keep referencing back to it this morning. In verse 18, Paul declares that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Yes, we might be left discouraged as we continue in our battle against sin, but that is not the end of the story for those of us in Jesus. What is coming is incomparably greater than our present experience. So as we live between the cross and the new creation and await the fulfillment of our hope, We need to cultivate a trust in God's ongoing work and patience for that coming day. And our passage today helps us to think about how we might do that. So we're going to start by thinking about what it means to wait patiently with our eyes fixed on that future day. Um, Many of us might be used to waiting, uh, waiting patiently. I'm currently in the process of waiting for a holiday. Um, We booked it months ago, and in a couple of short weeks, David and I are off to Cyprus. Apologies if this is like salt in a wound for some people this morning. Um, But I can't wait to go on holiday. Um, I'm counting down the days, getting myself ready, thinking about what to pack. Because as unreal as it might feel when we are stuck in rainy Cardiff, and the to-do list keeps getting longer, and the work pressures feel insurmountable, soon we will actually be going because we have secured that holiday. We'll be enjoying constant sunshine, all-you-can-eat food, beautiful sights, and an opportunity to finally switch off and rest. But while we have already paid for the holiday, and it is already ours to enjoy, we haven't quite made it to the 24th of May yet. We're living in that in-between. The hope of the holiday is real. We are actually going away. But the reality of it hasn't arrived. And that is a very small picture of what it's like to be a Christian and a very inadequate one at that because we're not living in the tension between work and holidays but we're living in the reality of the now and the not yet of eternity we have the down payment for that future the first fruits of the spirit as Paul talks about 
who reminds us that the end of the story is written, that the day of our coming glory is near. Because we know that Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin, and he's already been raised to life, destroying death forever. The future is already secured, but the day hasn't yet arrived. And that is why, in the present suffering, we groan. Like my impatience for my holiday to come, causing me to bemoan the rain and the cold and long for the sun on my face. We so desperately long for the glory that we know is coming. We groan in pain, like Anna, as we face the reality of suffering. We groan in frustration, like Tom and George, as we keep fighting against sin. But while it might feel like it at times, this groaning that we're experiencing is not empty and wasted. Look at the way Paul describes it in verses 22 to 24. He says, the creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, I've never had children, but I have lots of friends who have. And while to most of us, um, the idea of giving birth feels impossibly painful, I have one friend who told me that somehow it was bearable because she knew that it was productive pain. The pain is very much real, but it's producing something. It's for a purpose. It's not like that pain of injury that kind of keeps throbbing and reminding us that it hurts. The groaning and the pushing and the aching are doing something. They're leading to life. That is how Paul thinks of the groaning of this world, that painful frustration that we feel. Not empty and pointless, but productive. And like a mother who begins to feel those pangs of labor, the groans of creation remind us that the time is very near, that an end to sin and suffering is almost here, And when we see and experience it, we will understand how incomparable it is. And it starts, as Paul tells us, with the full revelation of our adoption as children of God. You can have a look down at that, um, verses 22 to 24. We're waiting for our full adoption. We're groaning for it. But what does that mean? Because we know already that our place in the family is secured I watched James' sermon last week and he so helpfully reminded us of that wonderful reality that we are united to Jesus, that we are children of God. Jesus has already welcomed us home to the Father and we are his this morning if we are in Jesus. And yet the full realization of our identity is still to come. Right now, we still do the things that we hate. We still wrestle with our old nature And we feel that frustrating but powerful pull of the world. Even while we know the first fruits of the Spirit in us, we are still in a battle with sin. But in that day to come that Paul is talking about, all things will see the reality of our status as God's children, adopted as his sons and daughters. Because in that day to come, our faith will turn to sight. And we will actually see Jesus as he is. As the Apostle John tells us in his first letter, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
One day, our faltering faith will turn to sight and we'll actually be with the one who has rescued us from darkness and brought us home. And when we gaze on his glorious face, we will be a full reflection of him and our sin will be gone. This constant battle that that we're in will be over. Sin will be removed completely and we will live in perfect peace with God. So that desire to lust after another person won't exist because you'll be so enamored with the glory of Christ that you won't have room to desire another. That urge to gossip won't niggle away at you because you'll be in the presence of perfect love and it will transform you completely to fully love others as Jesus loves us. That constant rage within you that leads you to lash out will be removed when you come into the presence of perfect peace and all wrongs are made right. And the enemy that accuses us, he will be destroyed forever. So you'll never experience that niggle of shame or be made to feel unworthy. You'll never again be tempted to believe that you're a failure because the accuser will be gone And you'll only know the voice of your father speaking love over you as he welcomes you home. And in that coming day, not only will the glory, our glory as God's children be seen, but our whole world will be transformed and the creation itself will cease its groaning. Since the garden, since that first sin of Adam and Eve, everything in this whole world has been on a trajectory to destruction and death, shackled and unable to escape its fate. But on the cross, Jesus not only stopped that spiral of decay, but he reversed it. Where everything was once moving towards death under the curse of God, Jesus has released it and satisfied God's justice so that everything now moves towards a future where life will abound. This is the full scope of the cross, that the whole creation will be restored. Death and decay won't be seen anywhere, not even in the curling of a dying leaf, or the failure of a seed to grow, or the over-ripening of a pear, or one single wasted drop of rain. The coming day will be one where there is no pain and sickness, where all tears will be dried up, and there will be no more premature goodbyes. The world will cease its groaning and come into its full beauty again. And we will be home with redeemed bodies that function perfectly and beautifully as they were always meant to. Not hampered by weakness or burdened by pain, but working completely. Ready to serve our creator for all eternity in fullness of joy. It is hard to imagine how that day will feel. But someone who does a beautiful job of imagining it is author C.S. Lewis. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Narnia series, but in his final book, um, The Last Battle, as he imagines what it will be like as the old Narnia comes to an end and the new one begins, we're given an image of something like what it might be like for us as we await this coming heaven. The quote's on the screen. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. 
This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. This is maybe a little bit of what we might feel when we enter the gates of heaven and we gaze on Jesus' face. We'll be home where we belong. That is why our present sufferings are not worth comparing. And this is why saying no to sin now is a battle worth fighting. Because although it might feel like that sin will lead you to life and pleasure and joy, it's lying to you. The enemy will tempt us to think that disobeying God is the way to true glory. But the gospel declares to us the emptiness and lifelessness of sin, but the fullness of joy in Jesus. So while we wait for that coming day, we need to fix our eyes on the future that is coming to help us stand up against sin and weather the storm of suffering. To remind us that it will all be worth it that more joy and pleasure is to come. Um, I know many of you guys don't know me that well, um, but I am actually a runner. I never thought I'd hear the day that I'd say that publicly, but here I am. Um, And I think that running can give us a really helpful way to picture this. Um, If some of you guys are runners or or you do a lot of exercise, maybe you can relate. When I was out recently, quite early on in my run, my body was really tired and I started to slow down. And I wasn't even halfway around the park that I was supposed to run around. I'd pretty much just walked in the gate of the park and I was ready to give up. But as I turned my head to see the gates that I needed to leave through, I realized that the finish line actually wasn't as far away as I'd imagined it. Seeing the end gave me the perspective to keep running, knowing that I was almost there and that I would be able to stop running soon. And that's why we need to train ourselves to fix our eyes and hearts on that glorious day. Because otherwise our weakness feels like it will overwhelm us. And we might even consider giving up. As we lose sight of the goal of eternity, we stop fighting sin. Because it starts to feel very small. And perhaps even irrelevant, because the distance between here and Jesus' return feels so huge. Most of us imagine we'll never see that day. So I might be tempted to think, well, what harm will it do? Or what difference really will it make? I might even think, like Tom, is it all worth it? The pleasures of today loom large in our vision, and we lose sight of what it's all for. We get weighed down by suffering because it's all we can see. And like a runner trying to take shortcuts or convincing herself that she doesn't need to train today. We look for solutions and comforts in this life because we lose sight of the one who's waiting for us at the end of our race. So instead, we need to actively set our sights on those things above, filling our vision with our glorious heavenly home. In that, we'll find the strength to press on in hardship, knowing that better things are coming. It is a guarantee. And we'll be renewed in our fight against sin, knowing that the enemy's end is written already. And at the right hand of God are pleasures forever that this world could not even imagine. So for you, this this discipline might involve just making time to daily look at God's word to fill your vision with the glory that is coming. And we can't do that if we don't know what we're looking for. 
So if that's not something that you're regularly doing, why not make space this week to just come to God's word and and ask him to show you more of, of what is coming for us in Jesus? And for others, it might be simply meditating on and chewing over certain verses. You might want to take Romans 8 home this week and think it through. Memorizing verses, clinging to them as you face the realities of sin and suffering in your day. And for others, it might be as simple as just putting up scripture around your home so that you can glimpse these truths all around you. But the point is that we need to put this whole thing into practice. We need to fix our eyes on that incomparably glorious day. Um, That hope of tomorrow is transformative for us as Christians. That's Paul's whole point, (laughs) that as we look to that future day, our whole effort here and now to fight against sin will be changed. And he goes on to say in verse 26, that in the same way that the glory, the hope of glory transforms us, so does the Spirit. As we wait for that coming glorious day, we have a helper who is working every day to grow us in the likeness of Jesus. Which brings us to our second point, that we are to wait patiently while depending on the work of the Spirit. Um, We're often very embarrassed to admit our weaknesses. Even as Christians, I think perhaps especially as Christians, we can feel like we're failing if we ever admit how hard it we find it to live for Jesus and how hopeless it can feel to live in this world of bad news. We don't really like to admit that. But our true dependence on the Spirit starts with admitting our weakness and our desperate need for help. And we can do that when we realize that our future glory is not dependent on our ability to be good enough or to fight hard enough. Maybe that's the message for you this morning. Do you know that your effort to make it to glory isn't dependent on how good you are? It's not dependent on your efforts. Jesus has already saved us. We've just been looking at that beautiful, glorious day that's coming. You cannot add anything more to it. As Paul tells the Galatians in chapter three of his letter, how could we be foolish enough to think that if our salvation started by means of the spirit, that we could finish it by our own strength and efforts? We weren't saved by our own strength and we won't be glorified by it either. Instead, we need to keep trusting in Jesus and his sufficient grace for us, depending on the power of the spirit that he has given us. This helper, the Holy Spirit, is the same one that raised Christ from the dead. That is the power that you have at work in you today. So yes, our weakness can feel overwhelming. Our our frail desire to fight sin sometimes feels like holding up an umbrella against a tsunami. But with you is the Spirit of God, committed to helping you be conformed to Jesus' likeness. So while all you have is a flimsy umbrella, he has the power to silence that storm. While you can barely lift your head, he's interceding for you when you don't even know the words to say. I remember someone saying to me once that the work of the Holy Spirit is like a slipstream moving us forward every day towards our full glory and complete freedom from sin. So as we follow his leading, 
Whether we swim really hard and we go great with Jesus and we make regular time to spend in the word and we pray and we're part of small groups and we do all those great and good things or whether all we can do is float along we're feeling our weakness in every moment because we're in the slipstream of the spirit we will get there. Our job is to press into him and stay in the stream. So while it might sound like it, our patient waiting is not a passive experience. It is an active one, where we daily choose to lean on the Spirit, coming to him in prayer, and trusting that he will inspire the words that we don't know how to pray. Sometimes that might be because we don't know what to ask for, because we're paralyzed and we don't know what's best or how God can help. Other times, we know that we need to pray, but we're too ashamed to do it because the Spirit has prompted us in the middle of a sinful temptation, and we don't want to listen, or we feel ashamed to have to say sorry again. But that is why we need the Spirit, because he will prompt us to remember what is true and to cling to what is good. And when all we can utter is a cry, the Spirit intercedes for us to turn our tears to words. When we're stuck in sin and unsure of where to go or what to pray, when all we can muster is just help, the Spirit who is working out God's will in our lives will lead us in the way to go. Because he has the same heart as the Father for us to help us know more of and look more like Jesus. That's why we need to be people and communities defined by dependence on the Spirit in prayer. Because he is our strength and helper as we wait for that coming day of glory. So why not make it a habit to pray with others? On a Sunday, when you're catching up, lift each other to the Lord. Over coffee, as you leave the pub, whenever you go to the pub this week. Make it a habit to turn towards God, knowing he won't turn away from you but he will continue his ongoing work in you to sanctify you. So as we start to wrap up and kind of draw this to a conclusion, I wonder how you might sum up Romans 8 in one word. For me, it's the word expectancy. Paul speaks of our future glory with such confidence because he knows that Jesus has finished the work of redemption and he will not give up on us until he's carried us through to glory. There is not a single hint of doubt or fear in Paul's words in this chapter. And yet our Christian lives can often be plagued by both of these things. We doubt that we're really saved. We fear that we're failing. We wonder if that future glory is ever really coming, or just an empty hope. So if that's you today, be assured that if you have trusted in Jesus for your salvation, the Spirit is a promise of your full glory and a guarantee that God will not leave you as you are, but he will finish his work in you. We have great confidence to know, as Paul tells us at the end of the passage that we've looked at today, that God right now is working all things together for our good. In every circumstance, while all of our lives between here and and heaven might feel like a struggle, 
we can be sure that God is working to conform us to the likeness of his son. He's working in everything to make us more like Jesus. He's not working to make us more comfortable. Sometimes we look at that verse and we imagine it means that God has only good things, only comfortable things for us. That's not what Paul's talking about here. The good that God is doing is sanctifying us. And it is a good thing, even though it might feel painful, it's a good thing. Sanctification is a joy for us because it sees us released from the dead end of sin and invited into endless joy of holiness. We can trust that God can work in any and all circumstances. Painful, joyful, suffering, temptation, to lead us into greater life with him. I was having a think about what this might look like, and there's a few kind of situations I thought of. Um, He can work for our good in a redundancy or in a loss of income, which feels like a wasted situation and a painful thing to go through. But he might be teaching us not to depend on the insecure idol of worldly wealth, but to instead find a certain foundation in his provision for us. He can use our physical weakness and our physical suffering to teach us not to depend on our own strength, but on his strength that does equip us for all things. He might even cause us to lose friendships or relationships so that we might find that lasting joy and fulfillment is found in Jesus and nowhere else. Everything, every single thing in our lives is being used by God to transform us from a life of slavery to sin to a life of freedom in Jesus. That is our great hope, that nothing is wasted and we are not left as we are. So why not think about your life right now? The people, the places, the challenges and the joys. In these things, how might God be revealing more of himself to you? Because he is doing that work. What sin might he be prompting you to turn from? What truth of the gospel is he helping you to learn more deeply? Ask God for eyes to see what he's doing and how he's teaching you. And find confidence not only in this, but in the great hope that those that God justified, he will also glorify. That's what it says at the end of this passage. That's the hope in which we were saved, says Paul. Not a wishful thinking or an empty promise, but an absolute certainty. That certain hope reminds Tom that while the pleasures of sin are very tempting, they are empty and lifeless in comparison to the glorious day to come. It is worth it to live for Jesus. It's the hope that comforts Anna reminding her that when her anxiety chokes her prayers and weighs her down, the spirit in her is still moving her towards glory and God is still at work for her good. And it's the hope that renews George's fight against the tempting sin on a Monday, giving him a vision of the future that Jesus has won already, reminding him that it will all be worth it when he sees Jesus face to face. These are our hopes too. 
These are your hopes this morning as you sit here. So keep trusting, keep fixing your eyes, and keep leaning on the spirit who's at work in you. Because today will not be comparable with the glory that will be revealed in us. And it is a certainty for us in Jesus.